Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 1. We are talking about the kingdom parables of God. And I'm calling the series, Thy Kingdom Come, even though we're not getting into the... What, what, what? what? Hi, you can't move it? You can't turn it? You want me to go over here? I am going to now indulge my wife and stand over here so everybody can see me. What, you didn't want to do the screen share? So here we are. All right, if you're tuning in on the podcast... um, you should really come to church because it's really interesting when we see. Okay, chapter 3. So this is called Thy Kingdom Come, even though we're not going into the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, when he's teaching the disciples how to pray, one of the, one of the phrases is, Thy kingdom to God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. He taught his disciples to pray this. Thy kingdom come. God, let your kingdom come to earth and your will be done here on the planet just as it is perfectly in heaven. Pray that. And so then Jesus, when he gets to Matthew 13, this is in the same book, uh, but when he gets to Matthew 13, he is teaching the crowds and especially his disciples what's going to happen for the next 2,000 years, what it's going to be like, what is life going to be all about and we talked about that last week's message. So let's pick it up at Matthew 13, 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds, large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. Jesus knew that most people just won't get it. He knew most people, they're just not going to get it. And as he sits in the boat, he tells this series of parables. Jesus begins to reveal for the first time what the next couple thousand years will be all about. He indicates that the next two plus millennia are going to be a time when the message of the kingdom is spread far and wide. There will be some who accept it, some who don't. It will be a time when the kingdom of God will grow large, from small and seemingly insignificant beginnings, that even as it grows and thrives, there will be a a competing kingdom that is also growing up and claiming the souls of many people. And that at the end of this long era called the church age, the true king will bring final judgment to all the earth with damnation for those in the kingdom of Satan and salvation for those in the kingdom of God. But Jesus knew in advance that most people won't choose salvation. He knew that for the next couple thousand years, even though many would respond to the gospel and be born again into the kingdom, and even though his kingdom would grow very large, spreading even to the far reaches of the globe, it would still be relatively few compared to those who don't stick with it or don't get it in the first place, and he knew that most wouldn't. And he had as, as much, a, he had said as much a few weeks earlier when he gave his great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
He said this, enter through the narrow gate. He's telling everybody, enter through the narrow gate, the, the narrow one, the, the tiny one, the squeezy one. Okay, squeeze through. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In the first of his kingdom parables in Matthew 13, Jesus illustrates this wide and narrow like this and why it is. So let's look at the parable together. A farmer went out to sow his seed. That's the end of verse three. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Remember, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus takes ordinary practices that these people who lived off farming and fishing, they could relate to it. And he, and he spins these practices into little stories that have a deeper spiritual meaning. And all the people would have understood the earthly part of the story. They would have got it. They would have understood the planting practices. It was something that they were very familiar with. The region of Galilee is rich farmland. As Jesus was speaking, the people could even look around and, and see the fields where the crops were growing. And these fields would be, uh, they would be long strips of turned soil with footpaths going alongside of them. And the footpaths were for people to get from here to there without trampling the crops, for each farmer to get to his field and to, to use that to access the fields. In planting season, so the farmer would would sling a bag over his shoulder and they would have an opening and he would walk alongside his field and uh, the, the plowed strips of land. And as he walked along, he'd reach into his bag, grab a handful of seed and just toss it into the field. He scattered it. Okay, this method of planting is called broadcasting. All right, and it's where we get the word today. Literally means to, to cast broadly, right? When a message goes out on the airwaves, it's being broadcast like the farmer spreading seed in the field. And so this is a familiar practice to everybody who listens. Every, everyone, probably everyone who uh, in the crowd had broadcasted seed at some point in their life. Even the little kids had probably helped dad or mom in getting the seed out there. Didn't take a lot of talent, actually. You know, they didn't have to have skilled broadcasting classes and, and, and graduate degrees to be able to scatter seed around. They didn't have to go to seed casting seminary or anything if you're getting my drift. So something to note about the story so far though, the seed was the same for everybody. The seed was the same, it was the same seed, same bag, same seed, all the same seed going out, okay? It wasn't 
uh, it wasn't, no matter where it landed, it was good seed. If it landed in the soil with the right conditions, it would germinate and grow into fruit, a fruit-bearing plant. There was nothing wrong with the seed. It had growing power built into it. It just needed to land in a place where it could grow. Jesus tells us in verse 19 that the seed represents the message of the kingdom of God. So the seed is a message. It's a, it's a word. It's a, it's a story. It's a truth. It's a message. It's news. The message has the power to take root in a person's life and grow to the point that the person bears fruit for the kingdom of God. It's a powerful life-giving message. The seed is potent, and under the right conditions, it will germinate and produce a changed life. Okay? And so this message of the kingdom, represented by the seed, is what we call the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. The message of the kingdom equals gospels equals good news. Uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit about what this message of the kingdom is, this good news, for a few moments. So early on in Jesus' ministry, he, one, one day he was in his hometown and he went to the synagogue. And it was the practice in synagogue that any of the rabbis or teachers could, could kind of come up front and uh, pull out one of those scrolls of the scriptures, the Old Testament it would have been, and read from it, and maybe make some commentary on it. And so Jesus goes up to the front, and he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and he pulls it out, and he reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. <laughs> Why did he pick that passage? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. With this scripture, Jesus was declaring the message of the kingdom, the gospel, the good news. He says, I'm proclaiming good news. It's a message which includes the truth about who he really is, the anointed king, I have been anointed, and what his kingdom means. It means freedom, emancipation, release to the poor, the bound, the blind, and the oppressed. Kings were anointed, okay, signifying that they had been commissioned by God to become the new king of Israel. A prophet would come along and he'd pour oil on the head of God's chosen guy and say, the Lord has anointed you as leader over his inheritance. Okay, Jesus reads this prophecy of the coming Messiah, the one who would not, who would, um, not be anointed by oil, but by the Holy Spirit of God, and declares that this prophecy is being fulfilled right now. He's saying, here I am. It's this being fulfilled in your hearing today. Here I am. I have come, I'm the true king of Israel, and not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And so his message of the kingdom was, I'm doing away with the old kingdom and establishing a new one, a new law, a new way of being, a new culture, a new system. And this new kingdom is a kingdom of grace, of forgiveness, of deliverance from captivity. He's saying that people no longer have to be slaves. You no longer have to be a prisoner. You're now free. The poor that he talked about in Isaiah uh, were those who lacked resources and therefore they lacked hope. They're imprisoned by hopelessness. And so when Jesus said, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, 
it would have brought a very specific scenario to their minds. All the Jews were kind of familiar with this changeover of power in the kingdom and this proclaiming good news to the poor would bring, would bring that to mind. They'd remember, they would think this. The poor in Israel were not only poor in the, in the sense that they didn't have much stuff and barely enough to eat, they were also usually in debt to the king, the current king. Because to get by, most of the poor would have to go and borrow money from the government. Then a record of their debts would be written down on a scroll and it would be kept in the temple until they paid it back with the interest that it demanded. If they couldn't pay it back by a certain time, then their fields would be confiscated and they would now be growing crops for the king. Worse yet, they might even have to sell some of their kids into slavery or themselves in order to pay out the debt. So they were not only poor, they were they were captives. They were deep in debt, no real hope of ever getting out. They were actually imprisoned by hopelessness. And so this is what would happen. A new king would overthrow the old king and he would firmly establish his rule by killing off the old king's supporters or throwing them into prison. And then he would send out messengers to all the surrounding towns and villages where people largely lived in poverty and the heralds would literally proclaim good news. Good news. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, I bring good news for the poor, they say, oh, good news, I've heard of that. That's where our debts get erased. They would know that. Good news. There's a king, a new king on the throne. The old ways are gone and a new day has come. Good news. Things are going to be different now. And just to help to make the point that this is good news and to even win the support of the common people, the new king would often go into the temple, bring out all the debt records and burn them publicly, effectively canceling all the debts of the poor who were enslaved to the former king. Are you starting to get the metaphor? You starting to get the simile here. So Jesus comes along and he says, I've been anointed by the spirit of God himself to proclaim good news to the poor. The message of the kingdom is that it's no longer hopeless. Your debts have been canceled. You get to start over. You're no longer in debt to your old master. The accumulation of your sins over the years leaves you without hope of ever being free from the guilt and shame and sense of impending doom. You know you could never make up for all the wrongs that you have done in, many, in so many ways to God, yourself, to others, either now or in the past. And so you're poor. You have no resources to redeem yourself. You're stuck. And no two-year, five-year, ten-year plan is going to set you free. But Jesus comes along and he says, good news. You're under new management now. The sins of your past have been canceled. They've been wiped out. You're forgiven of all of it. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. You don't have to let the chains of guilt and shame and hopelessness lock you up anymore. The gospel message of the kingdom is truly good news. Jesus came to die for sinners. Without his death and resurrection, there would be no forgiveness of sins and no hope. But through his death and resurrection, he establishes himself as the king of a whole new way of being. 
where forgiveness and release are the norm and all your sins and curses and self-centered living and hurtfulness and rebellion against God is forgiven, the debt is paid. Your debt records have been burned up. There is a new king now. All is forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Hope is restored. Burning the debts in public is like Jesus dying on the cross in public. The only question then becomes, who's going to seek him out to take advantage of this good news? Who will let this seed of good news germinate in their hearts so that it grows strong and produces enormous godly spiritual fruit in their lives? Jesus knew it wouldn't be everybody. In fact, it wouldn't even be most people. Most people would not receive the king or enter the kingdom. So back to the parable of the sower. Jesus is giving forewarning to everyone. The message was the same for everyone. It wasn't one message for rich people and one message for poor people. It wasn't one message for people in first world countries and a different message for those in third world countries. The seed was the same for everyone and the seed was good. The power of fruitfulness is built into the seed. But there's something else that's also true. The soil was all the same. I mean, for Jesus' parable, dirt is dirt, okay? All the dirt that the people were standing on was the same dirt as was in the fields. It's the same dirt as what was on the footpaths that was all packed together. Same kind of dirt. All the dirt had plant-growing capability. All the dirt had the same capability. The dirt itself was fine. The only difference between the dirt where plants thrived and the dirt where they didn't was the presence of other things, other influences and conditions. And so Jesus reveals in verse 19 that the soil is the spiritual heart of a person. He said, when anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. It's the heart. That's the soil. And so what Jesus is implying here is that everyone has a heart. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not so sure. I'm just kidding. <laughs> everyone has a heart. And everyone's heart is capable of receiving the seed of the kingdom message. Whether the seed grows into a fruitful plant or doesn't depends on the type of heart, it doesn't depend on the type of heart they have. The human heart is the human heart. Dirt is dirt, okay? As God created it to be. God made all of us with the capacity to know him, to connect with him on the spiritual level, level and produce fruit for his kingdom. Every heart has a heavenly capacity. I want you to grab onto that and hold on to that and know that because sometimes we don't think so. If their heart is not fettered with some outside condition that prevents the seed from growing, the seed will indeed grow. But Jesus is telling us that those outside conditions are prevalent and they hinder the growth of the seed inside a person. So two things are true at once. The kingdom message has fruit-bearing capacity built into it and every human heart has the capacity to respond to it. Negative Nancy, materialist Matt, uh, 
secular Sandy and loony Lenny all have heavenly capacity. Do we have any Nancy, Matts, or Lennies here today? <laughs> Whether they wear the badge of Republican or Democrat or Antifa or BLM, KKK, LGBT, Boomer, Buster, Gen X, or Gen Z, they all have human hearts that God created with the capacity to connect with heaven and respond to the gospel. By the way, I don't think I made an announcement about our prayer vigil, did I? No. So we're going to have a prayer vigil the day before the election. And we want God's will to be done in our country. We're timing it as the day before election, but we could do this prayer vigil anytime because we're not specifically praying for the election. We're praying that God will heal our land. That God will heal our land. Every heart is capable of receiving the truth, but there's so much other stuff and so many other directions and idols and, and uh, uh, pressures and, and hardness that the seed can barely penetrate. And if we're going to see a revival in our land, if we're going to see a healing in our land, God's going to have to stir it up and we're going to have to pray for it. So 2020, our last prayer vigil is going to be 20 hours. And it's from 4 in the morning till midnight on the 2nd, right? That's the day before, that's the Monday before the election, the 2nd. So, and there's a sign up back here. You can sign up. If somebody's already signed up for a time you, and that was the time you wanted, you can sign up too. We have plenty of room. Pe people can pray at the same time. The way this goes is, by the way, um, you come in during your hour and I put together a video to kind of guide you through the, the whole hour and it involves music and it involves some points that I'm going to uh, talk to you about on the video and explain and, and then give you time to pray uh, in between my explanations and prayers. Um, also, we're going to have that uh, recorded and available via a link. So if uh, coming in is not going to be uh, workable, you can actually do it at home and uh, just click uh, your time. We want to have 20 hours consistently covered of prayer for God to heal our land. And that comes from 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, for, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We're praying for God to heal our land because our land is sick and needs healing. So two things are true. The kingdom message has fruit-bearing capacity built into it. That's the seed. And the soil, every human heart, has the capacity to respond to it. But here's another implication of that truth. You can't judge the gospel based on people's response to it. Okay, Jesus told us that probably most wouldn't respond. People's response to the message of Christ all depends on them. And if the message doesn't take root and grow in a person, it's not because the message was wrong or lacks power, and it's not even because of the skill of the broadcaster. Okay, they, weren't, they don't have to be seminary trained. 
They don't have to go to John Maxwell's school for speakers. I don't think he has one, but that would be a good one. Okay? They don't, have to, they don't have to be all that talented. They could be a little child broadcasting the truth. Okay? And so it's not dependent on the skill. It's not dependent on the seed. The seed has the power. It's not because some hearts are made to respond to the gospel and some hearts aren't. The heart is the heart. It's only because the person has things going on in their heart that prevents the seed from growing. So what are these hindrances that get in the way of the kingdom message flourishing in a person's life? Jesus talks about three of them that are hindrances. First, he says the, the first seed fell on the footpath. And so that's the dirt that had been hard packed by people walking on it over and over and over again. Uh, if you go around through some backyards and neighborhoods around an elementary school, you will find these little footpaths because kids find shortcuts to school, don't they? And, and, we, and our kids went uh, through between some houses and through some backyards and, and had a real nice shortcut. You'll find these hard paths because of people walking over them over and over and over again. Um, and it becomes so densely compacted that when the seed falls on it, it just kind of sits on the top. It might actually, actually, it might eventually germinate, except that birds swoop down and gobble it up, or more people walk through and trample on it and stir it up and track it away and crush it. Okay? Jesus said this soil represents people who hear the word. In other words, they are exposed to the word, to the kingdom message, and have the chance to receive it, but they don't understand it. The original word Jesus uses that's translated understand literally means to put together. Uh, they hear the message, but they can't put it together. They can't connect with it. They, so they don't receive it, and it doesn't get a chance to take root before it's just snatched away by the devil or swept away by society. If they were left alone, maybe on a deserted island with just the gospel in front of them and no other human or demonic influence, no matter how hard their heart started to be, eventually that message would penetrate Germany and that person would become a Christian. This is the hard-hearted person. Their heart is still a heart with all of its heavenly capacity, but it's been hardened so that the gospel doesn't penetrate. And Jesus is saying that the church age, this two millennia plus, will be a time of broadcasting the kingdom message, and many will be so hardened that they won't be able to even comprehend it. We've all known people like this. This is the person who's unconcerned about God, unconcerned about Jesus, and unconcerned about their soul. They are stiff-necked, the Old Testament would call them. They're closed-minded. They're blind to heaven. They're deaf to the gospel. They are unresponsive, indifferent, inattentive, negligent, don't want anything to do with it. It hits them and it bounces off. Satan comes and snatches it away. There's a condition of the human heart that is pounded down by the traffic of a multitude of sins that there is just no sensitivity at all. This is the heart that knows no repentance, has no sorrow for sin, knows no guilt or spiritual concern for things that really matter. Their heart is never broken up or softened by conviction. They're callous to God and anything that has to do with God. Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their minds are blind and deaf to the message of the kingdom of the king. And Satan just snatches the message away. How does he do this? A lot of different ways. False teachers will come along and say, oh, Jesus isn't really a true king. The gospel, is, that isn't real. That's all bunk. Okay. We know better. Uh, fear of man. Uh, well, they don't want to lose their reputation or be seen as a religious nut. Maybe pride gets in the way. Some are just know-it-alls and, and can't admit they need help or don't have it all figured out already. Uh, Satan will use doubt or prejudice, uh, love of sin that they don't want to give up, procrastination, or some combination of all of the above. However he does it, their hearts are so hardened that they make it easy for Satan to just snatch the truth away so that it never has a chance to penetrate. Now, this would be a good time to kind of examine your own heart. Are you that dry, hard road? You may be on the fringes of religion. I mean, you came to a service. But sins have pounded and pounded on your heart to where it's utterly unproductive, unfruitful, and unresponsive to God. Some people hang on the edges of Christianity and church. They're kind of close by, and they hear the message. But it never really connects. Jesus knew there would be people like that. And he let us know ahead of time to expect it. The next soil in Jesus' parable is the rocky ground soil. In verse 21, he says, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. So the idea here is they have this quick response. Okay? The person immediately has an emotional experience when they first find God. And this rocky ground is where there's a shallow, in the countryside there, it was where there was a shallow layer of soil over top a large slab of rock underneath. And there were a lot of places in Galilee where the limestone rock would kind of jut up near the surface so that there would only be a few inches of fertile soil. And so the roots don't go down very deep before they reach this rock bed. And, and then they can't get through or they can't get enough moisture because the soil is too shallow to hold much water. And since the roots can't grow downward, all the energy of the plant is forced upward and it grows tall quickly. And that's how the farmer would know what's kind of going on there. This is the person who gets all excited about Jesus when they first come to him. And they appear to be growing quickly and tall. And they seem to outgrow the other believers around them that have been at it longer. They definitely have more enthusiasm. They're more excited. They look around and wonder, what's wrong with you people? Why aren't you excited for Christ? You must be dead. This whole church is dead. You ever been told that? Maybe they aren't dead. Maybe they're deep. Jesus says the problem with these passionate new believers is that they don't last. He says, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, or because of the word, they quickly fall away. In other words, they're so excited and fervent as long as it's new and it's fresh and easy. But when it starts to get hard, they kind of wither. They wither away because they have no root. It's all external, but it doesn't run very deep inside. What happened to them? What was going on? Well, the bedrock of resistance was still there. 
there was a slab of resistance to true repentance, true brokenness, true contrition. There was just a soft surface, and that's all. They don't ever deal with the real issues in their life. They never dig way down and look at that limestone rock of their sins and unrepentance and character defects to submit them to God for transformation. They just jump on the Jesus bandwagon, get excited about excitement. They love the idea of forgiveness. They love the music and happiness and the idea of God's power bringing blessing to their life. Maybe they responded to a health and wealth, happy-go-lucky gospel, uh, and through thought that Christianity was going to be this big party with lots of money coming the way. Maybe they wanted to marry somebody who was a Christian, so they got all excited about Christ for a few months. Maybe when they were faced with some big problem, uh, they got excited about having God on their side now, and his power is going to solve this big problem. But then three months later or whatever, they're gone. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. It got hard. Being faithful to God meant that they had to do the deeper work of repentance and obedience. Staying true to God meant they had to stand up to persecution, people uh, criticizing their faith. Growing deep in Christ meant that they had to start working at it. It meant that they had to withstand hardship and tribulation. Trouble and persecution are important for the kingdom of God, by the way. They are important realities, and we should welcome them because Trouble and persecution kill off the false and strengthen the true. So as quickly as these people shoot up, they fall away. And Jesus says we can expect to see this. Don't be discouraged about broadcasting the sea just because of these people. But again, I think this is a good time to ask ourselves something. Am I this kind of soil? Have I only been in it with Jesus for the good times, but not for the bad? Do I have a sort of unrepentant conversion experience where I've never really mourned for my sin or confessed my sinfulness, never really took a hard look at myself? Did I jump on the Jesus bandwagon because of a health and wealth prosperity gospel or because somebody I liked went to church? If your confession of Christ does not come from a deep inner conviction, get this please, if your confession of Christ does not come from a deep inner conviction of sin, a deep sense of lostness, an enormous desire for Christ to cleanse you and purify and lead you, if your confession of Christ does not include a desire for self-denial, self-sacrifice, and a willing to suffer for his sake, then you have no root. And eventually your, your faith will die. You'll, you'll fall away. Happens all the time. Because the trouble and persecution are guaranteed. In this life, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So you need to pray that God will take away the stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. Then Jesus goes on to describe the third heart condition that is unproductive. And it's represented by the thorny soil. Other seed fell among thorns, verse 7, which grew up and choked the plants. So this is good soil that has thorns in it. Okay, Thorns are, are the seeds of weeds. So we're talking about weedy soil. So this soil actually has two kinds of plants growing in it. 
at the same time. It's got good fruit-bearing plants, and it's got the weeds. And Jesus explains what the soil is in verse 22. He says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. It's like the roots of the weeds choke off and entangle and squeeze off the roots of the good seed. This is basic worldliness. It's living for the mundane, the, the things of this world, the cares of this world, your career, your house, your car, your wardrobe, your prestige, your looks, and riches are deceptive, and the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and those people are entangled with all kinds of thorns. They have competing loyalties, and if they are ever going to produce fruit for the kingdom, they need to be cleansed of all those weeds. The thorns or weeds are idols. I've talked about idols in the past. An idol is anything you put above or equal to your, your total and unreserved commitment to Christ. It's people who try to have kind of one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the kingdom of Satan. This is idolatry. Or maybe one foot in their own little world. Rest assured that eventually the thorns will win. Unless the believer does something to change the soil of his heart so that those thorns are removed, he or she will eventually drift away from the faith. True salvation only occurs where there's true repentance. Oh, coming back to that. True salvation only occurs where there's true repentance. If there hasn't been true repentance, they're not really saved. It's not just a name it and claim it and believe it and receive it. It's repent, confess, come humbly before the cross of Christ, realizing that cross is your cross. Because if there's no recognition of our sin and our sinfulness, no confession of it, if we just think, well, I'm okay, of course God would receive me, of course he wants me, because I'm me, that's not salvation. Should, should be no such thing as conceited, arrogant, prideful Christians. How do you even get to Jesus with that kind of attitude? You don't. True salvation occurs only when there's true repentance. Repentance is the destruction of idols in your life. When the people in Acts, uh, when whole cities full of people would find Jesus and repent, they would take all their silver idols that they had bought and were worshiping in their home and made little little sanctuaries in their home, they bring all of those to the town square and put them in the pile and burn them all up. And then the silversmiths would go broke and start a riot. I mean, that's what happened. Repentance is the destruction of the idols in your life. It's the willing diligence of dealing with sin in your life. It's the ruthless burning of all idols and sinful attitudes in the fire of your commitment to Christ. Then the final soil is the good soil. It's not hardened, it's soft, it's not shallow, it's deep, with a willingness to repent and be broken for God. It's not choked out by weeds, there's a ruthless intolerance of sin and idols in the heart. It's clean, good, deep soil. It's dirt just like all the other dirt, but it has the difference because of preparation. Jesus says the soil produces great fruit, a, a crop of 160, 30 times what was sown. Here's the principle. The way you can tell how good the soil of your heart is, is to look at the fruit that you're producing. 
That's how you can tell what the soil is like in your heart. Look at your fruit. Fruit is the proof of belonging to the kingdom of God. It's not the flowers. <laughs> it's not the foliage. It's not the leaves. It's not the size of the plant. Just fruit. The mark of salvation is fruit bearing, not enthusiasm. Uh, although it helps to be enthusiastic. I like enthusiasm. It's not church attendance, although that encourages fruit bearing. It helps. It's not tithing, although that is a sign that money, the money idol is being dealt with. No, the true mark of salvation is fruit bearing. What is fruit? Fruit is product, the output. It's evidence of God in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If a person's life is showing a long-term track record of these attitude qualities, that is the fruit of salvation. It's, it's attitude proof. There's also behavior proof. When we do good deeds, we behave morally and ethically and not with honesty and integrity. The Bible teaches us to have righteous behavior, not unrighteous behavior. And there's also witness proof or uh, fruit. The, the people are, when, that people are coming to Christ because of our words and life example, our lives and words have some kind of influence on others toward Jesus. Fruit is the character of Christ reflected in your attitudes, behavior, and your witness. Without the manifestation of God in a person's life through their character and witness, there's no salvation or kingdom citizenship evident. Now, not all good soil is equally fruitful, but all do bear fruit. Jesus said some produce a crop of 100, some 60, some 30. We don't all grow at the same rate or produce the same amount of fruit, but we all produce fruit and it's significant and noticeable over time. In closing, I want to give you a few application principles just to keep in mind. Number one, be ruthless with the thorns in your own life. The way you change thorny soil in your own life is through care and cultivation. You must do it on purpose. It don't happen accidentally. Otherwise, the thorns just keep growing and taking over. You, you need to pull them out, cut them off, Smother them, block their light, poison them, pour boiling salt water on the roots, one weed at a time. I looked up how to get rid of weeds in your lawn. Had all these ways. I said, well, what if you just burn off your lawn? And they said, well, they used to do that a lot. They used to, uh, I don't know if they still do, maybe they, they have this mixture that they would spray on, on a big grassy area and it would cause weeds to really grow and thrive. And then they'd burn them. I don't recommend that for your life. Don't cause your weeds to grow. Just go pull them out. Uh, study the word. Pray constantly. Get accountability. Like, don't do this in a corner by yourself. Get accountability. Confess and repent continually. Form disciplined habits. Immerse yourself in Christ to drive the weeds out of your life. Be ruthless with the idols. Principle two, lovingly, lovingly help your brother and sister. For other believers in your life, spur one another on to love and good deeds, the Bible says. Keep reminding each other of who our Lord is. Keep challenging other to, each other to greater and greater genuineness of faith and purity of commitment and, and, and being on the job, diligent to walk it out in real life. Keep calling each other to, to the cross to pull, boil, or burn off the thorny roots that have taken hold in our hearts. 
And then the third principle, maybe the most important, no matter what kind of soil you run into with people in your life, keep planting. Jesus knew that most people won't get it, but some will. Know that there will be people who are like the hardened footpath, people who are like the shallow, rocky soil. And there's going to be people like the thorny, weedy soil. Broadcast the seed anyway. Scatter the gospel to all of them. How do you know? How do you know what kind of soil they really are? How do you know that your sharing of the kingdom message with them won't penetrate or take root and eventually flourish? They might be the most hostile, negative person, but you offer some kind of word of grace from Christ that could really penetrate. Keep sharing what God has done for you. There's good soil. Share the message. Don't assume you know for certain what kind of soil you're dealing with because there's good soil out there. Keep sharing with others that you love God and love that he has forgiven you. Keep sharing what God has done for you, what he means to you, what Christ means to you. Keep sharing the truth of Christ's true kingship over all the universe. He really is king of kings, Lord of lords. Because there is good soil out there that will hear it and respond to it and grow deep in it and produce even more fruit to come. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of the kingdom. And God, as we just take a minute to kind of look in the mirror, the mirror of your word, help us, Father, to discern what kind of heart soil are we? Have we become hardened, calloused? Does the word just kind of bounce off our heads and never penetrate? Are we actually kind of shallow in that we've never really had a repentant conversion where our commitment to Christ never really involved sorrow for sin like we knew it was sinful and disgusting and we knew our sin was sin and damnable. We never had that. We just kind of jumped on a Jesus bandwagon and been looking for the next party, I guess. Or Lord, maybe, maybe probably all of us have thorns, have some kind of weeds, some kind of idols that we kind of still nurse, kind of keep around. Oh, Jesus, help us to see what we need to see and bring us to a place of true repentance, sorrow for our sin. You said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and seek my face and turn, turn from wicked ways, God, help us to see those things and turn from them so that you can hear from heaven and forgive our sins and heal our land. Let it begin with us. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.